Hi, I'm Ben Capelo, and welcome to All Keyed Up. Today, I spoke with Shanoa Murphy about Black representation in classical music and diversity, equity, and inclusion. Shanoa Murphy is a violinist and educator born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee. She has achieved both Bachelor of Music and Master of Music degrees in violin performance from the University of Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music, as well as doctoral studies from the University of Iowa. Being a former violin and viola private teacher, Shanoa is a highly sought-after educator, guest lecturer, and diversity, equity, and inclusion facilitator for various music organizations and college campuses. Her online courses, Introduction to Black Classical Composers and Musicians and Black Classical Musicians, The Journey Onward, highlight the contributions and achievements of classical music composers of African descent. Her article, Black Representation in Classical Music Matters, was featured in the summer 2020 edition of the American Suzuki Journal. Her course participants have been from Singapore, Wales, Scotland, Uganda, Kenya, England, Germany, as well as the United States. Currently, Shanoa Murphy resides in Springfield, Illinois, where she is a member of the Illinois Symphony Orchestra, the Millican Decatur Symphony Orchestra, and acting concertmaster of the Jacksonville Symphony Orchestra. Shanoa has been interviewed by various podcast hosts, CNN, NPR, Illinois, and Huffington Post. Her podcast, Black, White, and In Color, can be heard on all platforms. In this interview, some of the topics we talked about include the problem of colorblindness, scarcity versus abundance mindsets, an inside-out approach to DEI, the anxiety that many white educators face on teaching issues surrounding race, historical and present-day Black involvement in classical music, and Black composers who write piano music. I hope you enjoy the interview. Shanoa Murphy, thanks so much for joining today. Thank you, Ben, for having me. Glad to be here. Today, we're going to focus on Black representation in classical music and DEI, both of which are areas that you focused heavily on in your career. So I want to say from the outset that piano pedagogy is overall a pretty purple field in terms of opinions on these cultural sorts of topics. So I do think on the one hand, I'll probably have some listeners who will sort of shrug when they see that I'm doing an episode like this, and they'll feel like the whole project is dubious. This isn't my opinion, but I think they would say something like focusing on a specific race of composers is itself racist and trying to diversify Mm -hmm. studios is racist and we should focus on content of character over race and we shouldn't be dividing composers or students up by race. And Mm -hmm. this is not an argument that's remotely confined to music. People will say, why can we have HBCUs, but not HWCUs? Why do we have Black History Month, but not White History Month? So can I get Mm -hmm. your thoughts on this line of thinking and why you you feel, as do I, right. that given how classical music is now playing out in the real world, advocacy for Black composers and studio diversity is in many ways more advantageous than quote-unquote colorblindness? Well, the, first of all, it's a very uh, good question uh, or questions. Uh, like you said, given uh, the climate that we're in, um, especially, you know, today is the last day of Women's History Month. Um, I always find these, I guess, these questions or perspectives interesting because there was never any complaints when for centuries the focus was um, classical music, you know, the westernized version of classical music, as well as the focus being on white composers. You know, no one, there were no complaints, there was no blogs or podcasts or or anything of that nature 
stating that the focus was too much on white men in classical music. Um, however, you know, it's, it's interesting that now that a particular race or group of people want to um, be represented or want to show that representation, um, now there's a problem. Um, I even, you know, I just so happen to focus on um, Black classical composers, you know, myself being Black. Um, but I tell my students in my class, I don't care if it's Chinese composers or women composers or even gay composers, you know, if people have made accomplishments and achievements um, in this field, they should be represented. Everyone, you know, who has thrived in this field and like I said, made accomplishments and achievements should be represented. I think that's only fair. And um, I, you know, I, I guess I question why do people have a problem with it? You know, what is the real reason? You know, is it because it's Black people in particular? Um, because I teach in my DEI workshop on diversity from the inside out in particular, is that we're all socialized to have some type of feelings when it comes to Black people or race in general. We're all socialized and I would even uh, go as far as to say programmed um, to believe and have feelings um, along these lines, you know, along racial lines. And so the questions are valid, I guess, you know, if you're on the other side of this argument, but I would ask people who are um, feeling this type of way to ask themselves why, what is the real reason? That reminds me of one podcast interview I listened to of yours where you were saying that you think many people believe that the field of classical music is kind of like a pie. And mm -hmm. if you give a slice of the pie to one type of composer, then that's one slice less for other composers. But in reality, it doesn't work like that. It's mm -hmm. additive. I mean, you're building on the field. It's not as if bringing right. in one type of composer is at the expense of another composer. So I wonder right. if some of the skepticism people are feeling is this fear that the music they like is going to get replaced. Well, I, you know, I guess I, again, I would, I would say, or I would ask, does that, you have two types of mindsets when it comes to that line of thinking, because I have heard it as well. You have the scarcity mindset and you have the abundant mindset. Now, if you really, really believe that you having more or someone else having more means that you yourself or other people would have less, that's a scarcity mindset, which means that you don't believe that there's abundance everywhere, that there is more than enough for everyone. So that's where that pie, you know, scenario will come into place. I happen to believe that me having more would allow someone else to have more, would, would show the yeah. possibilities that someone can have, which is why people's stories are so powerful. You know, if you, Absolutely. if you heard, like, for example, let's use the Williams sisters, you know, these are two women who have come from, uh, Compton, you know, and we know the socioeconomic status or the 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 um, 
you know, just just the area of Compton and, and what that looks like and, and how it's been represented and whatnot. And to see that these women have now dominated tennis, you know, someone else who may, you know, be from Compton or even worse circumstances can see that this is possible. They can see what's possible yeah. for them now. So in my opinion, that would show a more abundance um perspective i hope i'm making sense <laughs> right and if we want the best tennis players possible wouldn't we want everyone to feel exactly. like they can try to play tennis and again it's that point it's, it's not, not the at expense the expense of. of anyone else and i think same goes with mm-hmm. classical music the more the merrier i mean we want to have the yes. best music we can and if a lot of black composers or performers are now feeling underrepresented they might not be as eager to try it out themselves exactly. as if they see more representation so it's i love this distinction you draw between a scarcity and an abundance mindset i've never heard that exactly. before um and i can yeah. see the implications of that towards a whole wide variety of other things that oh, you know yeah. this is this is a piano only podcast so we don't have to get on a political <laughs> rant but i mean i think people say this about immigration about now they'll Absolutely. take away their jobs when in reality they can create yes. more jobs it's i think there's so many exactly. ways we can take this but we're going to stay on on music for now. Um, so that okay. I think represents what I would say is the most, um, I, I don't want to say conservative, I, but the most uh, skeptical mindset that I imagine our listeners would have. So now I want to yes. turn towards a view that I would say is a little bit more quote unquote moderate, I guess, which would be this category of listeners who in theory, they would love if they had a more diverse studio and they would be happy to program works by black composers. But their response is kind of more shrugging and saying, well, well, in theory, my classes are open to anyone. If, you know, black people or people of color don't want to sign up for my lessons, that's their choice. Or, you know, I look at what's in the composer catalogs and I don't see black composers. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Like it's sort of the shrug mindset. Um, And so what I found interesting in looking into your work a little bit is in your DEI workshops, you talk about tackling these problems from the inside out, as opposed to kind of a lot of external things like fundraising efforts or things that maybe some other workshops would focus on. So can you elaborate on what this inside out approach means to you and advise teachers in this situation on how they should think about this in a way that might not let them off the hook so easily? Yeah, that's again, awesome, awesome questions. Um, because, well, how my workshop came to be um, are the questions that you just mentioned. Um, as you know, when when I had string teachers or music teachers take my class, the Black composers courses, then the questions are, well, what can I do to diversify my studio? What can I do to include this music in my repertoire without running the risk of Uh, appropriating, you know, how can I present this music with dignity? Um, And then, of course, the financial aspect of it comes in, the assumption that the reason um, you as a teacher, not necessarily you, Ben, but just you in general as a teacher, um, would not have children of color or Black children in their, their courses. And I remember thinking to myself, well, you know, my parents could afford the lessons. And I'm not saying that there weren't times that finances weren't difficult, but they did what it took, you know, to make sure that not just myself, but, you know, all three of um, of us, I have a younger sister and brother who were also enrolled in music lessons. I, it's a multi-layered answer, 
Because for one, if you don't see yourself represented in something, you're just likely to think that it's not for you. And so if Black children starting from, I don't know, preschool, kindergarten, up to high school, don't see themselves represented in classical music, they're just likely not to be interested. In fact, I have had um, you know, Black adults who have learned of my classes say, you know, had I had something like your class when I was in middle school or in high school, I probably would have um, hung in there or stayed in there or been more encouraged um, to continue um, because I love the violin or I love to sing or whatever the case may be. So then you have representation. And then you do have... Um, the financial aspect maybe, but to answer your question about the inside out, um, I'm a believer, and this might sound woo-woo, but I'm a firm believer that life in general is lived from the inside out. If you think about um, the shirt that you're wearing, the shirt that I'm wearing, the beds we sleep in, uh, even the shoes that we wear, they all first started with a thought. They all first started in the invisible realm, so to speak, if I can um, say that. And so I would start to ask myself, well, what thoughts, what beliefs, um, what did I hear? What did I not hear about classical music, about Black people, about people of color that perhaps could be preventing me from making that a reality in my own life? You know, because that wasn't an issue for me. When I taught violin and viola privately out of my home, I had white children. I also had black children. In other words, I had a mixed studio. So what is preventing someone else from having that? Well, for one, black people or people of color are kind of used to stepping outside of our racial group. Uh, we're going to have, you know, we're likely to live in spaces where there's more diversity, whereas maybe if you're white, you know, particularly in this country, that might not be the case. So all of these things, I feel, need to come into mind. You know, why do you live in an area where everybody looks like you? You know, what message does that say? You know, what did you, again, what did you grow up hearing? What did you grow up not hearing? So I just feel like those things come into play and it is much deeper than just Black folks aren't interested in classical music. That's a cop-out answer, <laughs> you know, but it, it, I feel like it starts with, with you as the person or you as the teacher. Yeah, I remember hearing you, this is a statistic that I learned from you in one of your interviews, that 77% of white people don't have a close friend of color, exactly. I think it was. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, I, I do think that this approach of looking at yourself, not just in musical circles, but just as a person, as you say, as you said a few minutes ago, the area where I live, how mm -hmm. did it end up that I lived exactly. in an area like this? Exactly. Uh, so I'm interested in when you talk to teachers about this in your DEI workshops, mm -hmm. do you find that they are generally receptive or defensive oh, yeah. or is it a whole range? Okay. No, they're generally receptive because I break it down in five stages. You know, the first stage is the beginning stage. Um, and I hope I can remember what the five stages are, but the, the first stage is, you know, the beginning where all of us are born into the system of racism. You know, it's something okay. that's already, um, happening. It's already in progress. It's already, you know, we're already up against 
uh, hundreds of years of racism haven't already taken place on the system, if that makes sense. And so then after that, you have your first socialization where you begin to get either um, explicit or implicit messages. You know, maybe you come from a family that um, where you're told, you know, oh, we love and respect everyone. You know, we don't hate anyone. But at the same time, did you grow up with Black friends? Did you grow up, you know, did you have a Black doctor or did you have a Black, you know, and then the second socialization is when those beliefs start to, um, I guess, become deeper in, into the mm-hmm. mind, so to speak, um, where you start to pay attention to what's happening alongside of, you know, um, social justice, not social justice, but um, the justice system. You know, you start to pay attention to what's happening in the healthcare system. You're, you know, what's happening in your church, who you go to church with, you know, who are your coworkers, you know. And then the fourth stage would be the enforcements where you start to, um, there are rewards and punishments based on um, your thoughts about race. For example, there are these racial scripts that are expected of you. You know, that's why um, interracial couples are still kind of stared at because it's not expected. I'm so sorry to interrupt. Mm -hmm. Can you clarify what you mean by script? Well, messages, for example, something that black kids or, or kids of color are likely to hear very early on in just within their homes are things like, we have to work twice as hard in order to break even. Or, um, you know, when you're out in public, you need to um, act a particular way. You have to make sure that you're on your best behavior and you have mm-hmm. to, um, you know, I think the, the main, one of the main racial scripts is the working hard part. Yeah. You know, we have yeah. to work twice as hard. We have to um, prove ourselves to be pretty much perfect you know, in order to be taken seriously. And even if you are successful with a lot of money, like in the case of, you know, what just happened with Will Smith and Chris Rock, you know, (laughs) these are two very famous celebrities and it's already being racialized. It's already being, you know, so would that happen if it was Mel Gibson or Jim Carrey or, you know, so just things of that nature. Uh, I hope that that made sense or I answered your question. Yeah, it does. So back to that example of the type of teacher who would say, well, I guess black people don't like classical music because my classes are open to everyone. Oh, well, I wonder if that would be an example of the type of racial script that you're describing. Oh, definitely. Because if you're, you know, I would venture to say, you know, I'm I'm of course not white, but I would venture to guess that white people in general are told that there are equal opportunities for everyone. Um, you know, I don't hate anyone. My, like you said, my studio is open to everyone, but yet if you live in Portland, Oregon, for example, which is 80 point, you know, 80% something white, how is that possible, you know, for your studio to, to diversify? So. Absolutely. Yeah. Now you've got me thinking about the different (laughs) aspects of my life and my, how much my music studio is related Mm -hmm. to different, like there's, there's the media aspect, what you see in the media, what your upbringing was, what your current social circle is, what your studio is. And I think seeing them all as this cohesive 
framework that all of them are parts of you. All parts of you. And then too, I, you know, one thing that I ask my, my students is, you know, even when you do encounter with, with black people, mm-hmm. why, why does it seem like they are, you know, lower social economic status than you, you know, can you not find anyone such as myself who is on the same level as you socioeconomic mm-hmm. status or just your status in life and you know but it always seems to be the the you know you have the hierarchy and then you have the the lower status you know when it comes to interacting with people of color or black people in you know in particular yeah. and i would also question that yeah and i think a lot of these teachers who are using that argument of, well, Black people just aren't signing up for the lessons, might in their heads think of it as purely a socioeconomic issue. Yes. But as you described, there are lots of families like the one, I guess, that you grew up with that Absolutely. could afford that. So that could be another topic for self-introspection. Like, why are those families not signing up exactly. for my lessons? Or, exactly. Um, because they're out there. Right. Okay. Now I want to turn to, we kind of went through the most uh skeptical opinion than what I would call a more moderate opinion. And now I want to go towards the opposite end of the spectrum, which is, um, I believe maybe I'm being uh, presumptuous, but what I believe most of our listeners attitude would be about this topic, which is teachers who are eager to make their studios more diverse. And they recognize that they have to, or they would like to make an active point to try to make their studios more diverse and to try to teach pieces by Black composers. And they're not skeptical about this project at all, Mm -hmm. but they're very anxious about getting it wrong. And this is something you kind of alluded to earlier in this interview, the anxiety. And I've seen other interviews where you talk about kind of some anxiety you often see in white educators as they work towards becoming more racially inclusive. So I guess a few questions on this line. First of all, I wonder if you could just comment on this anxiety that you see. Like, do you think this is well-placed anxiety and you get where they're coming from? Or do you, like, where do you think this anxiety comes from? I think it's, I understand it. Um, because again, because of the climate that we're in, um, there's just a lot of pressure for white people to get it right, to, to understand, to be knowledgeable, to be educated. Um, however, if you aren't, you know, say for instance, you're just waking up to what's happening or you're just realizing, um, the seriousness of, um, you know, what's been going on especially along lines of, you know, police brutality and things of that nature, um, then you might feel like you're a bit behind or you might, again, like I said, feel the pressure um, to get it right. Um, But I just began to think, you know, well, what if I was born and raised in an all-white environment, you know, school, church, um, who does my hair, uh, who babysits, who babysat me or who babysits my children. You know, if it's all one particular race, I'm not going to be very knowledgeable. I'm, I'm just right. not going to know. And so I, that's where I understand the anxiety. And so what I tell, which is why I tell people to really start to do the inner work. I think it's so mm-hmm. important to start Inside and and like you and I discussed a bit um, earlier in this interview, just really taking introspection. Like you said, this is a multi-layered thing, and 
if you happen to find yourself um, in some place like Portland, Oregon, so uh, for example, and I use that particular city and state because I've worked with with teachers and kind of work with them through how to diversify their studio. You might not be able to diversify their studio, but you can still diversify the repertoire. And so think about, you know, these are Suzuki teachers in particular who I've been working with. You know, how would you introduce a new Suzuki piece or how would you introduce a piece by Mozart or a piece by Beethoven? You probably wouldn't make that much of a you know big deal about it. So do the same for Florence Price. Say, hey, we're going to learn adoration by Florence Price. And she made history by being, you know, the first Black woman to have her piece uh, played by a major American orchestra, her symphony number one. So, you know, let's learn this piece by her and just kind of leave it at that. You know, I think it's been made to be a big deal for, for obvious reasons, but it doesn't necessarily have to be, if that makes sense. That totally makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I first was listening to an uh, interview with you where you talked about this, I found that quite comforting. The expression that you used is you said you don't need to quote unquote pull it out from under the rug and you don't need to make such a big deal out of it. Yes. And so I think a lot of teachers and admittedly earlier on in my career, I think I did this sometimes, like when they bring up a you know, work by a black composer in their studio. It's such a big thing. They're like, okay, now I'm suddenly, they lose all their humor. They lose their personality. It's like they're in a job interview and suddenly their whole teaching style is up because they're so afraid of getting it wrong. And I do think it's, I found it comforting. And I'm sure the people in your workshops find it comforting too, to hear you say, you could just do it the same way you do as any other uh, composer. Make it normal. Yeah. I really like another suggestion. I forget if it was you who gave this or the interviewer who gave this, but uh, mm-hmm. like, what? how about every time you do a piece by a new composer of any race, show a picture of the composer and give three fun facts. Exactly. And you could do that for every composer. Exactly. Like it doesn't even need to, you know, you don't need to do this whole separate curriculum when you bring in Florence Price or exactly. William Grant Still or someone. Exactly. Which, you know, if, if that's what you want to do and how you want to approach it, fine. Um, but one of my former um I hate to say students because that makes me sound old, but she was a private piano uh, instructor, just, you know, pastor's wife, taught out of her home, um, and she took my class, and that's exactly what she did. She just put up a picture of Joseph of Bologna and say, we're going to learn this, this piece, and she began to notice that the students would look up, and, and they would see the piece, and their focus would you know, and the interest just kind of uh, happened organically that way. And there are so many topics, like at least in music pedagogy, where we're taught as teachers to let to, to let students figure things out for themselves and to guide them toward the answer as opposed yes. for, to spoon feeding it. Exactly. And I think for whatever reason with race, a lot of teachers don't do that. And they feel very compelled to come across as experts yes. and to make such a big deal out of it. As you say, if you just do the exact same thing for each composer, exactly. picture three fun facts, mm-hmm. let the students be like, oh, a composer could look like that. You don't have exactly. to like splatter them with it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, That's awesome. Yes. So I do want to turn to the other kind of element of uh, your career that we haven't uh, talked about much, which is kind of Black classical music history. Okay. Now, this is something that and a lot of what I've read about it and hear about it, a lot of it talks about composers that are more recent, like George Walker, who passed away recently. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are many others. And so 
you might, I think when I was growing up, except for Scott Joplin, I would have thought that black classical music composers was pretty much just a modern phenomenon. But um, what many people point out, and especially you, is that actually the involvement of black people with classical music stems back even as early as Mozart and Beethoven, or even to the foundation of what we would call quote unquote European yes. music. So um, I know that this is something that you could write a whole PhD dissertation and we can't remotely talk about this in a comprehensive way, but mm -hmm. could you just give us a kernel into some of the ideas you talk about in your classes about kind of the roots of black involvement in classical music? Well, we can start with, uh, you know, people um, are likely to have heard of Frederick Douglass. But what they may not know is that he himself was a violinist and his grandson, Joseph Douglas, was the first African-American concertizing uh, violinist. But we can even go back um, further than that. I'm not necessarily well versed on the roots, but definitely the presence and the representation. I even found oh. a black royal trumpeter. Um, John Blanc, oh. as far he was a royal trumpeter for King Henry VII and King Henry VIII. And he was a hired musician, which means he was likely to have not been enslaved. Um, and so there's even, you know, presence there as, as far back as, um, you know, the early 1500s. And then who I teach is, you know, Blind Tom, who, who unfortunately was an enslaved person uh, in the 17, 1800s, but he was um, an autistic savant, which means he was highly, highly, you know, he was on the autism spectrum, but his gifting appeared in music. So he could um, mimic every sound that he heard. He could play, you know, on the piano anything that he heard. And so he had a quite, you know, very extensive classical music repertoire, Beethoven and Chopin and Liszt, uh, as well as his own compositions. Um, Battle, Battle of um, Manassas being one of them because, you know, his owner was a general in the uh, Confederate, in, in the mm -hmm. Confederate War. Then, of course, you have George Bridgetower, who was a, a friend and, you know, colleague of Beethoven, and you have Joseph Bologna, who also was a nemesis of Mozart, you know, so the presence is there. You know, George Bridgetower was a, was a tutored by Haydn, and Joseph Bologna's, uh, his own orchestra, um, premiered Haydn's Paris Symphony. So, you know, the presence is there, and, and it's not so much that, um, you know, the accomplishments were quite influential as well. You know, George Bridgetower directly encouraged and influenced um, Beethoven to compose his ninth um, violin sonata, which we know today as the Kreutzer Sonata, but Beethoven originally um, dedicated it to George Bridgetower. It was to be the George Bridgetower uh, sonata. And so those stories are important um, you know, to yeah. be, be told, because if we know about Beethoven, then we should know about George Bridgetower. Right. They, you know. Yeah. This is so sad. I have a, I majored in music in college, mm -hmm. but a master's degree from mm -hmm. a, you know, a Peabody Conservatory. And most of those names you just said there, I've never heard of. Same with me. This is, says the sad state of our education system. Mm -hmm. um, and so you offer courses on this, I believe. I don't know if they're open to the general public or is this something our listeners could get access to in any way or Absolutely. enroll in? Absolutely. I teach um, 
introduction to Black classical composers and musicians. Then I have uh, what serves as a part two, Black classical composers and musicians, the journey onward. And then I have my diversity workshop. Now, so far, it's been mostly Suzuki teachers, uh, music teachers okay. to um, take these classes and show interest. But in my opinion, it, it could be for anyone who have a love of classical music or a love mm -hmm. of history, a love of Black history. I also teach this course um, out of the um, extended learning department at a university of Massachusetts, Boston. So I have senior citizens, you know, uh, who oh. also take this course. And, and it's just for sheer interest, just sheer, you know, love of learning, curiosity. Uh, so to answer your question, it, I, it could be for anyone. I also teach it for families. You know, if you have children um, ages nine and up or nine to 14, uh, depending on whether or not you feel they can handle, um, excuse me, the subject matter, the history. Um, but yeah, it's it's for anyone. Okay, so I'll definitely make a point to include links to all of this in the show notes. Sure. Um, finally, before we go, two more questions. One, this is such a simple question, but I can't go this whole interview without ever asking just the most obvious question. I know you're a violinist, but this is uh, uh, a podcast primarily for a piano teacher. Yes. So do you have any recommendations of any Black composers who write piano music that maybe some of our listeners could consider either for their own playing mm -hmm. or if they're on the simpler side, any of their students? Absolutely. Um, so what I'll do is I will mention particular pieces, albums, Mm -hmm. as well as um, websites. Great. And I'll link all of the, what you're about to say in the show. <laughs> okay. So there is a uh, piano um, in terms. Okay. Let me start with websites. So there's piano lit.com. There's also music by black composers.org. And I think that's it. Okay. Now for particular pieces, there's Sonata in mm -hmm. E minor by Florence Price. Um, there's her Concerto in One Movement by Florence Price. There's 24 Negro Melodies by Samuel Coleridge-Taylor. Um, and even though Adoration was originally composed for organ, I believe there are arrangements for solo instrument, and I'm sure it could be played for piano. In my opinion, this is one of the simplest um, that a maybe advanced beginner, intermediate, definitely advanced student can play but it's Adoration by Florence Price. And then there are volumes. There's Piano Music of Africa and the African Diaspora, volumes one through five. And that is found on musicbyblackcomposers.org. Then there's an album by Natalie Hinderus, I believe is how you pronounce her last name, called Piano Music by African-American Composers. So you have uh, composers such as William Grant Steele, as well as R. Nathaniel Dett and George Walker, I believe is on there. And then you have books, um, even though she, Rachel Barton Pine is a, is a violinist, she has a book called Music by Black Composers that has short biographies of the composers as well as arranged music. Um, so there's, um, you know, violin parts, but there's also piano parts. And I'm pretty sure that can be um, arranged for piano students to be able to play. Um, but that's what I came up with. So I hope. <laughs> that's amazing. That's very, very thorough. That was good. And for a violinist, I'm very impressed. Excellent. Um, and then finally, before we go, we already mentioned about your courses, but can you give our listeners um, in general a uh, 
further sense of what you're up to now and how everyone can learn more about you? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I'm working, I'm continually uh, working on my website to keep it updated. Um, But my website is blackclassicalmusicians.com. But in terms of learning more about me, they can just find me through um, my email address, which is Shanoa, C-H-E-N-O-A at blackclassicalmusicians.com. And if they want more information or want to just reach out to me and we talk, and um, then yeah, that's the best way to, to reach me. And you also have a very active performance uh, career going on too, right? Like right now you're in a hotel about to perform in South Bend. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I play in several symphony orchestras in the area. Um, I'm, um, I live in Springfield, Illinois. So I'm a member of the Illinois Symphony there, but I'm also, um, you know, sub for Peoria acting concert master of Jacksonville symphony. Um, right now, as you mentioned, I'm subbing with the South Bend symphony in South Bend, Indiana. So that's kind of my freelance work. Um, but yeah, if, if, if you want to hire me, if you have a studio, or if you have a group of teachers for like, um, teacher development or personal development, cause I know teachers have to fulfill a certain amount of hours, um, at least Suzuki teachers do, but you know, I can be hired to teach these classes on black composers to your studio or to your organization um, of music teachers, string teachers, uh, whatever the case may be. But yeah, Shanoa at blackclassicalmusicians.com. What a wonderful service you're offering Thank to you. our listeners. I hope they take advantage of it. Well, mm-hmm. Shanoa, thanks so much for appearing on the podcast today. Thank you, Ben, for having me. It's been great. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for tuning in to All Keyed Up. I'll see you next time.